Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you? You don't remember ordering a package and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Between the essential reads and the English essentials, I spend a lot of time writing scripts. Now, I could do this from home, but it's a lot nicer to get out of the house and work in a coffee shop or a cafe. I could use my phone data to check articles and research for my scripts, but that can get expensive fast. It's so much easier to use the Wi-Fi at my favourite coffee shops. Well, thanks to Surfshark VPN, I don't have to worry about public Wi-Fi networks stealing my data. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and continue working without having to worry about anyone stealing my data. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 a month on a two-year plan and work worry-free wherever you please. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. We're continuing with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, and the book is about to get real intense, mentally um, and emotionally for the characters. Again, like usual, trigger warning for this book. It was written in the 1950s. There are some real dodgy terms that are used to describe certain characters in the book, and there are swears and slurs and all sorts, which I will bleep, but if you don't like those things, if they are triggering for you, then... um, yeah, maybe skip this one and go to another book that I've I've got. Uh, try Frankenstein. That book's fantastic. Letting you know as well that the store where you can purchase all of my audiobooks has now been updated to also include some uh, clothing items. I'm waiting on uh, my ones to arrive, and then I shall only wear those in these videos. But all of the designs, for the most part, pretty much all of the designs are done by the wonderful Valentina Angelios who you can follow on uh, Instagram at Valentina Angel R, um, or you can just click in the link below. But all of the profits that contain her artwork, we're splitting 50-50, and it's a wonderful way not just to support this channel, but to support an independent artist whose art is bloody fantastic. So if you'd like that, please go to the link in the description box and, uh, yeah, support the show, and more importantly, support her. Let's get started. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie. Part 2. 2. The way the big nurse acted so confident in that staff meeting. That worried me for a while. But it didn't make any difference to McMurphy at all. All weekend, and the next week, he was just as hard on her and the black boys as he ever was. And the patients were loving it. He'd won his bet. He got the nurse's goat the way he said he would, and had collected on it. 
but that didn't stop him from going right ahead and acting like he always had, hollering up and down the hall, laughing at the black boys, frustrating the whole staff, even going so far as to step up to the big nurse in the hall one time and ask her if she didn't mind telling just what was the actual inch-by-inch measurement of them great old big breasts that she did her best to conceal, but never could. She walked right on past, ignoring him, just like she chose to ignore the way nature had tacked her with those oversized badges of femininity, just like she was above him, and sex, and everything else that's weak and of the flesh. When she posted work assignments on the bulletin board, and he'd read that he'd been given latrine duty, he went to her office and knocked on that window of hers and personally thanked her for the honor, and told her he'd think of her every time he swabbed out a urinal. She told him that wasn't necessary. Just do his work, and that would be sufficient. Thank you. The most work he did on them was run a brush around the bowls once or twice a piece, singing some song as loud as he could, in tune with the swishing brush. Then he'd splash in some Clorox, and he'd be through. That's clean enough, he'd tell the black boy who got after him for the way he hurried through his job. Maybe not clean enough for some people, but myself, I plan to piss in them. Not eat lunch out of them. And when the big nurse gave in to the black boy's frustrated pleading and came in to check on McMurphy's cleaning assignment personally, she brought a little compact mirror that she held under the rim of the bowls. She walked along, shaking her head and saying, Why, this is an outrage. An outrage. At every bowl. McMurphy sidled right along beside her, winking down his nose and saying in answer, No, that's a toilet bowl. A toilet bowl. But she didn't lose control again, or even act like she might. She would get after him about the toilets, using the same terrible, slow, patient pressure she used on everybody. As he stood there in front of her, looking like a little kid getting a bawling out, hanging his head and the toe of one boot on top of the other, saying, I'll try. I try and try, ma'am, but I am afraid I'll never make my mark as the head man of the crappers. Once, he wrote something on a slip of paper strange writing that looked like a foreign alphabet, and stuck it up under one of those toilet bowl rims with a wad of gum. When she came to the toilet with her mirror, she gave a short gasp at what she read reflected and dropped her mirror in the toilet. But she didn't lose control. That doll's face and that doll's smile were forged in confidence. She stood up from the toilet bowl and gave him a look that would peel paint and told him it was his job to make the latrine cleaner, not dirtier. Actually, there wasn't much cleaning of any kind getting done on the ward. As soon as it came time in the afternoon when the schedule called for house duties, it was also time for the baseball games to be on TV. And everybody went in and lined the chairs up in front of the set. And they didn't move out of them until dinner. It didn't make any difference that the power was shut off in the nurse's station. And we couldn't see a thing but that blank gray screen. Because McMurphy'd entertain us for hours. Sit and talk and tell all kinds of stories like how he made $1,000 in one month driving a truck for a jeep outfit and then lost every penny of it to some Canadian in an axe-throwing contest, or how he and a buddy slicked-tongued some guy into riding a Brahma bull at a rodeo in Albany, into riding him while he wore a blindfold. Not the bull, I mean, the guy had on the blindfold. They told the guy that the blindfold would keep him from getting dizzy when the bull went into spinning. Then, when they got a bandana wrapped around his eyes to where he couldn't see, they set him on that bull backward. And Murphy told it a couple of times, and then slapped his thigh with his hat and left every time he remembered it. Blindfolded and backwards. I'm a son of a gun if he didn't stay the limit and won the prize. 
and I was second. If he'd been thrown off, I'd have took first place. And nice little purse. I swear, the next time I pull a stunt like that, I'll blindfold the damn bull instead. <laughs> Whack his leg and throw back his head and laugh and laugh. Digging his thumb into the ribs of whoever is sitting next to him, trying to get him to laugh too. There were times that week when I'd hear full-throttled laugh, watch him scratching his belly and stretching and yawning and leaning back to wink at whoever he was joking with, everything coming to him just as natural as drawing breath. And I'd quit worrying about the big nurse and the combine behind her. I'd think he was strong enough, being his own self, that he would never back down the way she was hoping he would. I'd think, maybe he truly is something extraordinary. He's what he is. That's it. Maybe that makes him strong enough, being what he is. The Combine hasn't gotten to him all these years. What makes that nurse think she's going to be able to do it in a few weeks? He's not going to let him twist and manufacture him. And later, hiding in the latrine from the black boys, I take a look at my own self in the mirror. I wonder how it was possible that anybody could manage such an enormous thing as being what he was. And there'd be my face in the mirror, dark and hard, with big, high cheekbones, like the cheek underneath them had been hacked out with a hatchet. Eyes all black and hard and mean-looking, just like Papa's eyes, or the eyes of all those tough, mean-looking Indians you see on TV. And I'd think, that ain't me. That ain't my face. It wasn't even me when I was trying to be that face. It wasn't even really me then. I was just being the way I looked, the way people wanted. It don't seem like I ever been me. How can McMurphy be what he is? I was seeing him different than when he first came in. I was seeing more to him than just big hands and red sideburns and a broken nose grin. I'd seen him doing things that didn't fit with his face or hands. Things like painting a picture at OT with real paints on black paper with no lines or numbers anywhere to tell him where to paint. Or like writing letters to somebody in beautiful flowing hand. How could a man who looks like him paint pictures or write letters to people? Or be upset and worried like I once saw him when he got a letter back? These were the kind of things you'd expect from Billy Bibbit or Harding. Harding had hands that looked like they should have done painting. Though they never did. Harding trapped his hands and forced him to work sawing planks for doghouses. But Murphy wasn't like that. He hadn't let what he looked like run his life one way or the other, any more than he'd let the combine mill him into fitting where they wanted him to fit. I was seeing lots of things different. I figured the fog machine had broke down in the walls and they turned it up too high for that meeting on Friday, so now they weren't able to circulate fog and gas and foul up the way things looked. For the first time in years, I was seeing people with none of that black outline they used to have. And one night, I was even able to see out of the windows. Like I explained, most nights before they ran me to bed, they gave me this pill, knocked me out, and kept me out. Or something went haywire with the dose, and I woke up, my eyes were crusted over, and the dorm was full of smoke. Wires in the walls loaded to the limit, twisting and sparking death and hate in the air. Twisting and sparking death and hate in the air. All too much for me to take, so I'd ram my head under the pillow and try to get back to sleep. Every time I peeked back out, there would be the smell of burning hair and a sound like side meat on a hot griddle. 
But this one night, a few nights after the big meeting, I woke up, and the dorm was clean and silent. Except for the soft breathing of the men, and the stuff rattling around loose under the brittle ribs of the two vegetables, it was dead quiet. A window was up, and the air in the dorm was clear, and had a taste to it made me feel kind of giddy and drunk. It gave me this sudden yen to get out of bed and do something. So I slid from beneath the sheets and walked, barefoot, across the cold tile between the beds. I felt the tile with my feet and wondered how many times, how many thousand times I'd run a mop over this same tile and never felt it at all. That mopping seemed like a dream to me, like I couldn't exactly believe all those years of it had really happened. Only that cold linoleum under my feet was real right then. Only that moment. I walked among the guys, heaped in long white rows, like snowbanks, careful not to bump into somebody, so I came to the wall with the window. I walked down the windows to one where the shade popped softly in and out with the breeze, and pressed my forehead up against the mesh. The wire was cold and sharp, and I rolled my head against it from side to side to feel it with my cheeks, and I smelled the breeze. It's fall coming, I thought. I can smell that sour molasses smell of silage clanging in the air like a bell. Smell somebody's been burning oak leaves, left them to smolder overnight because they're too green. It's fall coming, I kept thinking. Fall coming. Just like that was the strangest thing ever happened. Fall. Right outside here, it was spring a while back. Then it was summer. And now it's fall. That's a curious idea. I realized I still had my eyes shut. I'd shut them when I put my face to the screen. Like, I was scared to look outside. Now, I had to open them. I looked out the window and saw, for the first time, how the hospital was out in the country. The moon was low in the sky over the pasture land. The face of it was scarred and scuffed, where it had just torn up out the snarl of a scrub oak and mandrone trees on the horizon. The stars up close to the moon were pale. They got brighter and braver the farther away they got out of the circle of light, ruled by the giant moon. It called to mind how I noticed the exact same thing when I was off on a hunt with Papa and the uncles, and I lay rolled in blankets Grandma had woven, lying off a piece from where the men hunkered around the fire as they passed a quart jar of cactus juice in a silent circle. I watched that big Oregon prairie moon above me put all the stars around it to shame. I kept awake, watching to see if the moon ever got dimmer, or the stars got brighter, till the dew commenced to drift onto my cheeks and I had to pull a blanket over my head. Something moved on the ground beneath the window, cast a long spider shadow out across the grass as it ran out of sight behind a hedge. When it ran back to where I could get a better look, I saw it was a dog. A young, gangly mongrel slipped off from home to find out about things went on after dark. He was sniffing digger squirrel holes, not with the notion to go digging after one, but just to get an idea of what they were up to at this hour. He'd run his muzzle down a hole, butt up in the air, and tail going, and dash off to another. The moon glistened around him on the wet grass, and when he ran left, his tracks left dabs of dark paint spattered across the blue shine of the lawn. Galloping from one particularly interesting hole to the next, he became so took with what was coming off. The moon up there, the night, the breeze so full of smell that makes a young dog drunk, 
that he had to lie down on his back and roll. He twisted and thrashed around like a fish, back bowed and belly up. And when he got to his feet and shook himself, a spray came off him in the moon like silver scales. He sniffed all the holes over again, one quick one, to get the smells down good. Then suddenly froze still with one paw lifted and his head tilted, listening. I listened too. I couldn't hear anything except the popping of the window shade. I listened for a long time. Then, from a long way off, I heard a high, laughing gabble, faint and coming closer. Canada honkers, going south for the winter. I remembered all the hunting and belly crawling I'd done trying to kill a honker and never got one. I tried to look to where the dog was looking to see if I could find the flock, but it was too dark. The honking came closer and closer till it seemed like they might be flying right through the dorm, right overhead. Then they crossed the moon, a black, weaving necklace drawn into a V by that lead goose. For an instant, the lead goose was right in the center of that circle, bigger than the others, a black cross opening and closing. Then he pulled his V out of sight into the sky once more. I listened to them fade away till all I could hear was my memory of the sound. The dog could still hear them a long time after me. He was still standing, with his paw up. He hadn't moved or barked when they flew over. When he couldn't hear them anymore either, he commenced to lope off in the direction they had gone, toward the highway, lopping steadily and solemn, like he had an appointment. I held my breath. I could hear the flap of his big paws on the grass as he loped. Then I could hear a car speed up out of a turn. The headlights loomed over the rise and peered ahead down the highway. I watched the dog and the car making for the same spot of the pavement. The dog was almost to the rail fence at the edge of the grounds when I felt somebody slip up behind me. Two people. I didn't turn, but I knew it was the black boy named Giver and the nurse with the birthmark and the crucifix. I heard a whir of fear start up in my head. The black boy took my arm and pulled me around. I'll get him, he says. It's chilly at the window there, Mr. Bromden, the nurse tells me. Don't you think we'd better climb back into our nice toasty bed? He can't hear, the black boy tells her. I'll take him. He's always untying his sheet and roaming round. And I move, and she draws a step back and says, Yes, please do, to the black boy. She's fiddling with the chain and runs down her neck. At home, she locks herself in the bathroom, out of sight strips down and rubs that crucifix all over the stain, running from the corner of her mouth in a thin line down across her shoulders and breasts. She rubs and rubs and hails Mary to beat thunder, but the stain stays. She looks in the mirror, sees it's darker than ever, finally takes a wire brush used to take paint off boats and scrubs the stain away, puts a nightgown on over the raw, oozing hide and crawls into bed. But she's too full of the stuff. While she's asleep, it rises in her throat, into her mouth, drains out of that corner of her mouth like a purple spit, and down her throat, over her body. In the morning, she sees how she's stained again, and somehow she figures it's not really from inside her. How could it be? A good Catholic girl like her? And she figures it's on account of working evenings among the whole ward full of people like me. It's our fault, and she's going to get us for it if it's the last thing she does. I wish McMurphy would wake up and help me. 
You get him tied into bed, Mr. Giver, and I'll prepare a medication. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe, because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. Five stars, very much so preferred, but you've got free will, do as you please. And if you'd really like to support the show, um, then join the subscription thing, whatever it's called, on YouTube. And I think it's just join. Click the join button and you can support me. Or in the description box on both YouTube and the podcast platforms, you can also click in the description and you'll have a link to support me on either or both if you're really cool. (laughs) Stupid. Anyway, once again, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.